If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So this childhood story that everybody thinks they know has in fact been very much affected by uh, this correction in the tapestry where someone has thought, everybody knows there was an arrow in the eye, so I will stitch one in. And that wasn't necessarily the right thing to do. That was Catherine Herlock discussing the bio-tapestry. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Now, a few days ago, the French president announced his country's willingness to lend the famous biotapestry to Britain at some point in the next few years. In light of this, we've interviewed Dr Catherine Herlock, Senior Lecturer in History at Manchester Metropolitan University, about the history of the famous embroidery. Putting the questions to her was our content director, David Musgrove. Perhaps you could just very quickly give us a, uh, the briefest overview you can as to what the tapestry actually is. 
The tapestry is actually confusingly an embroidery on linen. It's about 70 metres long and half a metre high, and it depicts the events leading up to the Battle of Hastings when England was conquered in October 1066 and the battle itself. Uh, it doesn't seem to have its end piece, so we don't quite know how it would have panned out. And there's some debate about how much of it is missing. But essentially, it's a narrative of events, but in visual form, so a bit harder to interpret. And uh, and the end piece that you just described, I mean, the, the assumption is that it would probably show William's uh, coronation uh, uh, after the Battle of Hastings, after William I's uh, victory over Harold. Yes, absolutely, because that would have mirrored very nicely with the start where Edward the Confessor is sitting down and telling Harold to go to Normandy, so it would have finished it off beautifully. But there's some debate about how much is missing, anything from one and a half metres to six and a half metres. So obviously, if you believe that more of it's missing, there's a lot more narrative that needs to go in. Um, but we've got no idea, presumably, if and when this missing bit went missing. No, or even if it was never quite finished. Um, it seems likely that it probably was. I can't imagine anyone would go to the trouble of commissioning this and then not see it through. Um, it's possible that it was damaged during one of the times when the tapestry was moved, such as during the French Revolution. So let's just take it back to uh, to, to the start of the story. So as you said, it uh, it charts the events of the uh, of the conquest of uh, of England by William the First um, and the victory at the Battle of Hastings. Um, we don't know exactly when it was made, but I think the assumption is that it was made at some point in the 1070s or 1080s, i.e., very soon after the event. Do you agree with that? That's probably about right. Most people think it was uh, commissioned by Odo, Bishop of Bayeux, the illegitimate half-brother of William the Conqueror. Now, he fell out of favour in 1082, so if he was the man who organised this, uh, it's unlikely that it was continued um, after his fall from grace. It must have been reasonably close to the events that it depicts, because um, explaining a long time lag just doesn't make sense. And it's likely that Odo did it in order to match up with his work at Bayer Cathedral, which he was having rebuilt and which was going to be uh, dedicated in 1077. So if his intention was to have this tapestry displayed in Bayer Cathedral, then obviously the 1070s are the best sort of date to think about that, that they go hand in hand with each other. Um, but again, as with many things with the tapestry, I'm going to call it the tapestry, even though you've you've already yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, picked up on that point. Um, it, it, we, we we don't know that it was Odo. In fact, other candidates have been uh, posited as as the possible people who originated it. Um, Edith of Wessex, for instance, is one other candidate. Edward the Confessor's um, widow um, has been has been mooted another candidate, but presumably you don't see any any um, any truth in that uh, idea. Carol Hicks put that idea forward that um, Edith was responsible because she was, of course, very well connected. It was usual for queens to take the job of patronising nunneries where this sort of work would take place. So she would, in theory, be somebody in the right sort of social situation, the right geographical location, and the right sort of responsibilities. And Carol Hicks argued that she commissioned the tapestry as an act of reconciliation um, in order to make up with the new regime. So it could be that this gift was a way of um, getting in with William, essentially. That's the theory, anyway, that Carol Hicks puts forward. Um, so uh, whoever it was, it's, it's fairly certain it would have been done fairly quickly after the conquest. And yeah. uh, and we we suspect that it may have been made in England. I mean, the, the, the leading candidate is, uh, is uh, one of the um, tapestry houses in Canterbury. Yes, there is some debate on this. And unsurprisingly, 
the majority of uh, the English school thinks that it was produced in England. Um, and you're absolutely right that Canterbury seems to be the place most favoured. Uh, more recent theories suggest it was produced at St. Augustine's Abbey in Canterbury under the supervision of its abbot, Scotland. Scotland had previously been a monk and head of the scriptorium at Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy. And um, he had experience with um, overseeing work that was highly illustrated obviously not um, in embroidery form, but in, in manuscript form, that um, shows that he would manage this kind of project. Furthermore, we know that Scotland had been to Rome, where he'd seen Trajan's Column, which was made uh, in 113 AD and showed uh, a base relief of the Romans and Dacians fighting at the start of that century. And if you look at it, it essentially looks like someone has taken a classical version of the Bayer tapestry and wrapped it around a large stone column as a spiral. So the theory goes that there's a visual um, piece of inspiration for this that Scotland would have had. The other supporting evidence, really, for English embroideresses working on this is that Anglo-Saxon England was famed for its embroideresses. One of the king and queen's embroideresses is even mentioned in the Doomsday Book, which is highly unusual, and their skills were famed throughout Europe. Now, of course, there are other theories. It was made in the Loire Valley, for example, and that's why there are so many scenes about the Breton campaign um, towards the start of the tapestry. But uh, we don't really know uh, any more than that, and it does seem that Canterbury is winning this particular debate. One of the ideas that uh, has been mooted um, is, the, is the, the possibility that the tapestry could have been sort of um, taken backwards and forwards by William uh, as he moved between uh, his his first territory in Normandy and his new territory in England. Um, do you think there's any possibility of that? I mean, what, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know what was actually the tapestry was used for when it was first first created could it have been travelling in the entourage the baggage train of uh, of of the new king or is that just a, a crazy idea it's clearly a large item well quite it, it is massive at 70 meters uh, and so even rolled up it would be a very heavy item to move and not only that when you get somewhere how are you going to display it you obviously need a very large building and these are um, panels that are stitched together and there's no evidence that um, they were unstitched and displayed in sections or anything like that. So it, it seems unlikely. Um, moreover, if it was commissioned by Odo um, to go in his cathedral, then why would William have it? Um, and why would he be hoiking it round the countryside of England and Normandy, when most of the time, you know, he was on campaign or uh, busy governing the country? So probably not really what he was thinking of doing, uh, taking this round. So... Uh, what would what was the the tapestry's purpose? How were people to view it? Do you think at the time, if it was in the cathedral, were people just to look at it in awe, or was it a, a, a teaching aid? What was it supposed to be doing, and how was people supposed to view it? Well, we don't entirely know, but the fact that if you walk along it, it's clearly a narrative explanation of events suggests that that is the way that people would have been encouraged to view it rather than just going up to a, a random section of it. Obviously, if Odo di displayed it in his cathedral, he would be able to manage to some extent how people were going and seeing it. But one of the problems we've got is that we're not entirely sure on all of the messages that are contained within the Bayer tapestry. There are theories, for example, that there are hidden allusions uh, to Anglo-Saxon thoughts on the conquest. Um, some of the figures are slightly hard to identify. So if you subscribe to that school of thought, that there are hidden Anglo-Saxon codes, then you're going to have to think differently about 
how it was displayed and how people were looking at it and why they were looking at it. Now, it might seem odd um, to bury something Anglo-Saxon in a tapestry if it's only going to be displayed to a Norman audience, uh, but there's plenty of um, thought that thinks, obviously, these Anglo-Saxon embroideresses and designers and craftspeople working under Scotland did just that in some of their decoration and some of their choice of imagery. And that's that's one of the interesting aspects to the tapestry is the fact that even though it's a it charts the story of of uh, the victory of the Normans over the English, it's not it's not a triumphalist um, story that's presented, is it? In fact, the English are, are presented in a surprisingly sympathetic light, aside from perhaps Harold, who's who, who is you know the, the the bad guy in the story. Um, uh, do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that's that's a, a fair a fair assessment? I think that is quite fair because Harold is quite often shown in a sympathetic light. And even if you look at the way he's portrayed in the uh, brief bits of text that are on the tapestry, he is referred to as Duke and then King. So he is given the title that he's using at the time, whereas um, a tapestry that was purely about how outrageous it was that the crown had been usurped might not be willing to use a title like that. Um, some of the mockery that you uh, can see in the uh, tapestry is also reserved for other individuals, um, like Guy. He's riding a horse that looks a bit like a donkey and is, is a bit poorly made, made compared to the others, whereas that mocking element doesn't seem to be there uh, when looking at Harold. Rather than being sort of triumphalist, it feels a bit more like it's just a justification, um, an apologia, really, for what has happened and showing those who saw it that... William was justified in what he did. It wasn't to do with greed. It wasn't to do with overreaching ambition. You know, he'd been promised England by Edward the Confessor. Harold had sworn to uphold this promise, as far as we can tell. Um, and he was the one who had done wrong. And William was just setting things to rights. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. How unique an artifact is uh, is, is the biotapestry? Um Obviously, there was a tradition of this sort of embroidery at the time, but would would a, 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 a tapestry and embroidery of this length and this magnitude have been a particularly unusual thing? Would people have, have been to see it and been awed and wowed by the size of it? Or is it actually just a, 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 a lucky survival and there would have been lots more of these sorts of things? 
Well, we do know that there were other embroideries that um, laid out scenes of one kind or another. Um, and uh, noble women at the time, we have references to one of them um, having something in her chamber. But it's the sheer scale of this one that suggests it's so unusual, so uncommon. And as you say, people would have been struck by it because you'd need the space to display something like this. Um, and other works are, are smaller that survive, that suggest um, private use. This is clearly for public display. Um, and so it's intended to impress. It's intended to um, shock might not be the right word, but certainly make people take notice of what it's saying. So it's unusual, I think, in, in its scale and in, in its ambition and in its message. OK, so we kind of don't know too much about what happens to the tapestry for the first few hundred years of its life. We we assume that it was probably in bio in the cathedral, but we don't have any reference to it until the, the late 15th century. Um, and then it kind of stays in bio for 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 the rest of its uh, life, really, apart from a couple of interludes where it's taken to Paris, as you suggested, under Napoleon, and then it's uh, it, uh, it, it gets taken into storage during the Second World War. Um, but, uh, but it hasn't really been anywhere other than bio, as far as we know, has it? No, absolutely. It, it seems very much that it was kept as a, a sort of a, a work for celebratory display because it was brought out for the Feast of John the Baptist. Um, certainly, we know that from the 15th century onwards. And uh, there's no reason for it to have gone anywhere else. And part of that might be because people didn't really pay a great deal of attention to it. It wasn't really until the 18th century when antiquarians sort of sat up and noticed this really unusual, amazing survival from the Middle Ages and took an interest in it. And from there on out, people would go and visit it. Um, people were sent to draw it. So we have uh, depictions of what it was like before it was fiddled about with. And really, that's where the, this modern fascination with the biotapestry as a historic artefact began. Uh, as you say, that it didn't need to move before then, and it was um, generally left alone in Bayeux. And, and not particularly maltreated, presumably, but then not conserved in the way that modern conservators would do. And, and there, there are some issues with the restorations that have been carried out on it over the years. Yes, there are. If you um, look at the biotapestry, and hopefully people will be able to do that if it comes to England, you can see plenty of bits that have been patched. Um, and there are also bits that have been stitched in. So some of the restoration wasn't what we'd think of as particularly sympathetic. Uh, and it certainly added things uh, that maybe weren't there. The most famous example of that is uh, the figure of Harold with the arrow in the eye. Every school child learns that that's how Harold died at the Battle of Hastings. But the sources are a bit contradictory on it, and it's entirely likely that actually he was hacked down um, instead by a number of men. The image of the Bayer tapestry that shows Harold clutching an arrow going into his eye was actually um, a figure that was tampered with or fixed incorrectly, if you're being generous, by restorers who stitched the arrow going into Harold's eye. Now, we know from drawings that were done before this happened that there were needle marks on the tapestry, but equally it could have been because there was a spear or something else there. Moreover, the text above Harold is a little bit ambiguous because it could be referring to the figure that's lying on the floor under the horse or indeed the figure on the horse. Uh, it could show a narrative whether uh, the figure is falling off the horse and that's Harold dying. So this childhood story that everybody thinks they know has in fact been, uh, how can I put this? It has been very much affected by uh, this correction in the tapestry where someone has thought everybody knows there was an arrow in the eye so I will stitch one in and that wasn't necessarily the right thing to do. Okay so 
should the tapestry uh, make its way to England? I mean, it's far from certain uh, at the moment what's happening, but but should it uh, be moved and 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 come across the channel? Have you got any views on how it should be displayed? I'm not saying where it should be displayed, but how it should be displayed. Well, it's got to be displayed in a way where you can walk along it um, in the order in which the narrative is supposed to be understood. And what would be brilliant is if it could be displayed with other objects from that time to give it more context. If you go to France to see it, and I've done this several times, it's great, but it's on its own in a room. If they could include some of the art from the 11th century, um, some of the manuscripts that talk about the Battle of Hastings, that describe what happened to Harold and to Edward and to William, then I think contextualising it would make it an entirely different experience and bring the uh, tapestry to life for far more people. Do you think uh, this this potential move, this 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 loan of the uh, of the embroidery, presents any particular opportunities for any new research or any scientific um, aspects that that could be carried out, any tests or anything that could be carried out on it uh, when it moves that would help us to to answer any of the outstanding questions, for instance. Potentially, in theory, there are lots of um, new techniques that are being used to analyse, for example, medieval manuscripts to do with assessing um, what's touched their surfaces, things like pollen, um, things like where fingers have touched the edges of pages. So it's possible that a DNA analysis, pollen analysis, um, analysis of the surface could be conducted. The problem, of course, is that I'm sure the tapestry will come to England under the strictest conditions. And... Um, so much will depend on the degree to which the French are willing um, to let anyone touch it for research purposes. So that would be something that would be great if it could be done, because it might be able to help us geographically locate the tapestry and we might know where it came from. Um, even analysing the wool that was used could be useful in that context. But whether that will happen, I don't know. That was Catherine Herlock of Manchester Metropolitan University. And we'll be following the news of the biotapestry loan very closely in the pages of BBC History magazine in the months to come. And meanwhile, why not head to historyextra.com, where you can read the views of other historians on this major development. Well, that is about it for today, but please do listen in on Thursday when Barry Cunliffe and David Abulafia will be reflecting on humanity's relationship with the oceans. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.